We don't need to go down that road. We can learn ahead of time from Kansas's example and make sure that it doesn't happen in the first place. This should be a learning experience, not just for Kansas, but for all of us. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Bradcast, The Other Washington, The Young Turks, The Real News Network, and Who, What, Why. Conservatism itself, or for or what now passes for conservative policies, conservative ideology, which now pretty much amounts to huge tax cuts for businesses and the wealthy and austerity for everybody else. In the meantime, in places around the country where these practices have been put in place, it is failing miserably. The uh, the poster child for this failure really has been Kansas now for several years. And uh, the pushback really came hard over the over this past week as Kansas legislators on Tuesday repudiated the tax cutting experiment that brought Republican Governor Sam Brown back national attention with even his fellow Republicans voting to override his veto of a plan that will reverse many of the income tax reductions that he has championed over the past several years since taking office. Lawmakers said that this was the only way to fix the cash-strapped state's budget. The state will increase the personal income tax rates and end an exemption for more than 330,000 farmers and business owners. Legislators expect the changes to raise $1.2 billion in new revenue over the next two years to close the projected budget shortfalls, totaling almost $1 billion through June of 2019. And it will also provide additional funds for public schools. So these, you know, they cut taxes. We got to help the economy. It'll no, spur the it economy. kills the economy. Right. It kills the economy and it leads to cuts, uh, huge cuts and austerity. And in this case, particularly to schools, the conservative Republican governor still touts these income tax cuts that he enacted way back in 2012 and 2013 as pro growth policies. But voters decided otherwise last year. They ousted two dozen of Brownback's allies from the legislature and gave more power to Democrats and moderate Republicans who then backed this year's tax increase. The legislature's action leaves Brownback's main political legacy now in tatters, according to AP. Senate Majority Leader Jim Denning, a conservative Kansas uh, Kansas City area Republican, he supported the first rounds of tax cuts back in 2012, but he over voted to override the veto. He said he still be- that uh, that Brownback still believes. He repeated, still believes in this. That's okay. I don't. He said, I've made many bad decisions in my business career, as many bad as good, but I've always backed up and mopped up my mess. That's what I'm doing now. He's admitting he got it wrong and he's mopping up the mess. So good for him. The tax increase was also designed to cover the extra aid to the state's 286 local public school districts because the state Supreme Court had ruled in March that education funding was inadequate. 
And of course, that's what they were cutting, that and roads and bridges. So lawmaker uh, lawmakers passed a plan Monday night to phase in some $293 million in increases in education funding over the next two years. Good for them. Brownback's remaining legislative allies, like him, suggested that the tax increase will ruin the economy. <laughs> They've ruined the economy in Kansas uh, since 2012, since coming to power. So, uh, But a, they're not a, going to admit much, it ever. A much-needed correction uh, to conservatism and austerity is now coming in Kansas. Yes, hope is on the way. In the meantime, uh, hope may not yet be on the way for Oklahoma, uh, where they have a, a similarly uh, right-wing governor who is screwing everything up and a similarly right-wing legislature still in place. A deepening budget crisis there has now forced schools across the Sooner State to make painful decisions. Class, size, class sizes have ballooned, according to the Washington Post. Art and foreign language programs have shrunk or disappeared entirely with no money for new textbooks. Children often go without. And perhaps the most significant consequence, students in scores of districts across the state are now going to school for just four days a week. Funding for classrooms has been shrinking for years in this deeply red state as lawmakers have cut taxes. Hey, I thought that was good for the economy. <laughs> Slicing away hundreds of millions of dollars in annual revenue and what some Oklahomans consider a cautionary tale about the real life consequences of the small government approach favored by Republican majorities in Washington and state houses nationwide. School districts were staring down deep budget holes, having to turn to shorter weeks in desperation as a way to save just a little bit of money and persuade increasingly hard-to-find teachers to take some of the nation's lowest-paying jobs. So they also don't pay them well. Oklahoma is 49th in the nation when it comes to teacher pay, according to uh, federal data. Teachers are leaving in droves for better-paying jobs elsewhere in other states. The number of positions filled by emergency-certified teachers who have no education training, or uh, as one of the uh, district heads says, quote, are upright and breathing, is now 35 times as high as it was in 2011. They can't increase the payments for them because they've been cutting taxes down to the bone, losing revenue to the state. There's your conservatism. How's it working out for you, Oklahoma? 96 school districts in Oklahoma have lopped Fridays or Mondays off of their schedules. This is nearly uh, triple the number that did this back in 2015 and four times as many ha as, uh, as in 2013. An additional 44 are also considering cutting instructional days by moving to a four-day week. This fall or shortening the school year. Democrats had helped to pass bipartisan income tax cuts from 2004 to 2008. Republicans who have controlled the legislature since 2009 and the governorship since 2011 have cut income tax further and also significantly lowered taxes and here's where you'll be interested, Des, on oil and gas production. So yep. they're giving tax cuts to the fossil fuel industries across Oklahoma, 
And uh, because, you know, that's going to improve the economy. And apparently it didn't. And the money did not come in. And so who pays the price for this? Kids, school kids, amongst others. The problems facing Oklahoma are our own doing, said State Senator John Sparks, the uh, chamber's top Democrats. These are the results of a bad public policy and a lack of public sector investment. Governor Mary Fallon, Republican, said a downturn in the energy sector and decreasing sales tax revenue have led to several very difficult budget years. Gosh, I wonder why that happened, Governor. She brought this about. They're facing now a $900 million budget gap. Once again, almost a billion-dollar budget gap in Oklahoma. Lawmakers approved a, a, a budget recently that will effectively hold school funding flat in the next year, and so they can't give teachers any raises. And uh, meanwhile, in Washington, Donald Trump has proposed significant education cuts that would further strain local budgets. It's going great. This is exactly what they were rejecting in these elections in the UK. And now, by the way, in Kansas back in November. So uh, Oklahoma has decreased spending for uh, 14% per child since the Republicans took over in 2008. 14% decrease. And the the state spent just eight thousand dollars per student. This is only only Arizona, conservative Republican red state, Idaho, conservative Republican red state, and Utah, conservative Republican red state. Only those three states spent less on their kids. That's what Republicanism gets you. I don't even want to call it conservatism. It's Republicanism. That's what it gets you. The the class sizes are uh, huge now in Oklahoma. They're trying to do any kind of uh, money saving they can. They're uh, cutting uh, one of the ways they save money on Fridays is because the school buses don't run. So they use less diesel fuel to run those buses. They have not given a raise to salary uh, teacher uh, salaries since 2008. So uh, that's what conservatism, republicanism gets you. That's what tax cuts give you. The foundational principle behind the Trump budget is he needs to cut taxes on the wealthy and on corporations because that's how you grow the economy. And then those job creators will create great jobs for everybody else. So uh, to address that issue, uh, since none of us are super wealthy, uh, we went to our plutocratic overlord, Nick Hanauer, not quite a billionaire, but billionaire-ish. To get his take on the Trump budget and uh, what it does for rich people like him and uh, ordinary, not so important people like us. So, Nick, uh, as a guy who's worth uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, I assume you're you're pretty thrilled about the Trump budget. <laughs> it is it is a thing to behold uh, from my point of view. 
Republicans used to be slightly better about hiding this from people. But, you know, I think Trump's great challenge is that fundamentally he's an incredibly stupid person. So he 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 and his merry band of miscreants struggle to hide uh, their true intentions in the same way that the that the Republicans that that preceded him were able to do. But, you know, he, he was going to make America great again. Finally, somebody was going to drain the swamp and uh, fight Wall Street and defend working people. You don't think that a trillion dollar tax cut for um, uh, millionaires and billionaires that throws 23 million people off of health care? That's not draining the swamp? You, you know, I mean, may, may, I think it's filling the swamp up with buckets of money for rich people. <laughs> I mean, the swamp used to have like fetid water in it. Now it's now it's gobs of money. It's quite an astounding thing politically to run on a relatively populist platform and then to uh, enact or attempt to enact policies that clearly only benefit the richest people in society. People are creatures of emotion. And I know that his supporters, his core supporters will do anything to maintain their emotional connection to him and their support of his policies, irrespective of what the evidence um, suggests. But eventually, those feelings will collide with reality. And um, a huge proportion of the 23 million people who are going to lose health care are Trump supporters. And, uh, you know, one has to believe that eventually it'll make them angry. And the, the scary thing is, is that those folks started out angry. And that's right. And our politics today is uncivil and unconstructive because so many people in the country are angry. You know, I think I think we've seen nothing yet. I think it's going to get much, much worse. So So we understand somewhat why these Trump supporters vote for him. They they wanted change. They weren't hearing a coherent uh, and compelling message from the Democrats. Uh, they've been screwed over for decades. Things are only getting worse. At least Trump was promising something, even if they didn't believe he would deliver. And on, right. and on the trickle down side, uh, they've been, they've been taught this again for decades that, oh, well, you know, you gotta cut taxes on the rich to get the growth that'll create the jobs and the higher wages, et cetera. But what about your crowd? Your, your, your fellow super rich people, do they still buy into this that the, that you need to cut taxes on corporations and the wealthy in order to grow the economy and, and fix the inequality problem that we have? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, some people clearly do and some people don't, uh, uh, you know, the, the most powerful force in human affairs is the need to self justify. And if you want your taxes, to be low, uh, it's pretty easy to make up a story for yourself that makes tax cuts for rich people um, morally and economically uh, sensible and appropriate. And, you know, there's obviously clearly a ton of people and many people in my group, in my set who, who, who continue to believe and want to believe that tax cuts are how we create growth and that rich people like them are job creators and that the more money they have, the more jobs they'll create and all this other ridiculous nonsense. You know, some people clearly don't believe it and, and, uh, and are, you know, part of 
the crowd fighting against some of this silliness. Uh, but, you know, the Republican Party is so wed to the big donors who, who, who simply don't care really about anything but tax cuts that they're trapped. And, you know, the whole, the, the whole health, their whole health care approach is simply a huge tax cut for rich people masquerading as health care. Uh, that's really all it is. And, and, uh, you know, the, there's a, there's a whole ton of people who, who will benefit from that and who prefer it. I'm trying to figure it out. How much of it is just selfish cynicism and how much of it is people being wrong about how the economy works? And and you can make a distinction. Your crowd, you're mostly with the uh, venture capitalist technology innovation side. There's also the Wall Street side of the economy. And I know there's a difference in the way they approach this. I mean, cynicism or stupidity? You know, I'm no psychologist, so I can't I can't really tell. Uh, but a lot of people want to believe that the economy uh, depends on them, and the better they do, the better everyone else will do. And certainly, rich people desperately want to believe that because it's morally self-justifying. And uh, you know, it's 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 you know, it's a great conundrum. But we, you know. It's just clearly not true that the richer the rich get, the better off everyone else will be. And, um, you know, it just takes a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of resolve to try to fight against those stories and narratives. So there's that ideological side, the old uh, trickle-down school, which uh, we're trying to tear down. And then I think there's also this um, real animosity towards the poor uh, Paul Ryan talks about how um, our, our social safety net creates a, a, I think it's a quote, a hammock of dependency. And, you know, we're very pro-hammock in this office, yeah. uh, <laughs> as well as as pro-safety net. I mean, what is it going to take to get those Trump voters, to get to get the public to understand that it's not just that the um, their policies are counter to their interests, but they're actually kind of despised by these people they're electing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, people are super tribal and uh, see the world as us and them. And no one more tif typifies that than um, Paul Ryan, uh, you know, and, you know, sort of the construct of which he looks at the world is, you know, this idea of makers and takers, that there are a few of us who are, noble and worthy and moral and hardworking and the rest of everybody else is sort of, uh, you know, a parasite and sucking off the teat of uh, government or whatever it is. And of course, this is just it's just a nutty way to conceptualize, uh, you know, a human society. It's certainly not true. And if you were to add up who's making and who's taking, clearly the rich are taking way more than they're making. <laughs> And, um, you know, the, the, the subsidies that wealthy people get, um, uh, and the tax exemptions and it, the advantages and so on and so forth, it's just so staggering and, and amount to so much as a percentage of GDP of the economy relative to the support that we give, you know, uh, people at the bottom of the economic pyramid that it's, you know, it's quite staggering and 
there's no economic rhyme or reason to any of this. It's just a moral stance about people who matter and people who don't. And, you know, that's the way he sees the world. It's, he sees it as a zero-sum world of makers and takers. And, and that's just sort of factually not true. It's, it is or should, it should be a positive-sum world of sellers and buyers. And all of us, hopefully, are both sellers and buyers. Uh, but we certainly want more buyers and more sellers. And when you have that and when you invest in the country in that way, everything gets better for everybody. When it comes to running your own business, there is a lot that you don't want to slip through the cracks. One contract slip-up or legal misunderstanding can really set you back. And even a little podcast like this one is technically a business, and it has some legal T's to cross and lowercase j's to dot. But as you might expect, I don't have the kind of money you would need for a lawyer or anything like that, so I did what over a million Americans have already done and turned to LegalZoom to help me file all my necessary paperwork, pay my fees, and help keep me on top of all of my ongoing legal obligations that I wouldn't even know how to keep track of otherwise. So if you find yourself in a similar situation, don't waste your time trying to wrap your head around all of the fine print and complicated laws. Use LegalZoom for all of that so you can focus on growing your business instead. You'll get the legal help you need without being billed by the hour since LegalZoom isn't a law firm. So go to LegalZoom.com today and be sure to enter the code LEFT in the referral box for special savings. Only at LegalZoom.com. Referral code LEFT. After years of suffering, Kansas's tax problems might finally go away, at least in part, after Republicans this week overrode their own party's uh, governor's veto of a tax-increasing bill. Um, so basically what, what happened was years, back in like 2014, uh, Brownback comes in, Republican governor, and he decides, you know what, we have these fantasies as a party of massive tax cuts and you know what? I'm going to go all in. And so he slashed taxes for individuals, for corporations, massively changing their tax code. And the idea was, the defense at that time, was that this is going to stimulate so much economic activity that you don't even have to worry about the loss of revenue. It is going to fix itself. Now, progressives like us have been telling you, and people have been telling you for decades, that that's not actually how it works. And so they had their experiment in Kansas. And we saw the results. I actually went to Kansas uh, a year or two ago with uh, a union of teachers on the, the 50th anniversary of the Brown v. Board of Education because their education system has been devastated by the lost revenue. Their transportation system, road maintenance, all of that devastated because they're not making the money that they used to. Uh, not only are they getting less tax revenue, but there are so many loopholes that many individuals are reclassifying their income as small businesses, and it has been a disaster for Kansas. Credit to the Republicans, at least in some part, they've been trying to fix this now for a few months, trying to pass at least small increases in taxes, repealing some of those tax cuts. Uh, but Brownback has stopped them until this week when they were able to get a veto-proof majority. And so now, I mean, we're not talking about a lot of taxes, by the way. We're talking about very small numbers. 
Uh, individual income would be taxed at rates of 3.1%, 5.25%, and 5.7% starting in tax year 2018. Uh, the changes also end Brownback's tax cut for certain business owners known as the LLC exemption. That is the progenitor of many of the loophole problems that they had. Yeah, I, I look, I know that those percentages don't seem like much, but they do have a very large impact in, in terms of raising revenue yes. for the state. So I do want to give uh, state lawmakers, particularly right-wing state lawmakers, a great deal of credit for doing what they're doing, for uh, fighting on this issue, even after uh, the governor vetoed it. I love the fact that they got together and they found a way to override his re- uh, his veto. And essentially, they did the right thing. They mm-hmm. realized that it was hurting their state, it was hurting their constituents. And I love that, for once, uh, politics were pushed aside. And regardless of political ideology, these lawmakers decided to represent their constituents as opposed to big businesses. Yeah. Uh, with that said, though, um, there are similar problems in other states, including blue states like California. Mm-hmm. So in the late in the late 1970s, and this is different because it's not a governor coming in and, and changing things up. But in the late 1970s, uh, California passed a ballot measure uh, known as Prop 13, and that dramatically cut tax revenue uh, to the state in the form of property taxes. It capped property taxes at, I believe, a little over one percent, one point five percent of the value of a home, right? Mm -hmm. And so think about it. Uh, Education is funded through property taxes. And so the LAUSD, for instance, was one of the best school districts in the country. And then after this ballot measure passed... The school suffered because they lost, schools suffered because they lost a bunch yeah. of revenue. And the other part of that, uh, ballot measure was that in order to increase taxes, you need a, you needed a two-thirds majority to vote in favor of increasing taxes, which never happened. Which is incredibly tough. Which is yeah. incredibly tough. And so California suffers in a similar way, even though, uh, the tax cuts were, were done in, in a different method or yeah. through a different method. And so, Anyway, I'm giving you all of that because this is a problem that we're seeing throughout the country. I like that Kansas is taking a step yeah. in the right direction. This is not the tax plan that I would have passed in Kansas, obviously, but this is Kansas after all. So the Republicans are going to have their say. And so, yes, it was the Republican fault that they had this problem in the first place, both the governor and the state legislature. Um, but at least they, to some extent... um uh, fixed it. Now, this is consequential not just for Kansas, but for uh, the U.S. as well. If there's any reason in the world, if people are rational at all, it will matter because this isn't just sort of theoretically like the um, Republican tax plan, like Trump's tax plan that he wants to enact across the entire country. Many of the people who crafted Brownback's plan are economic advisors for Donald Trump. So they are trying to do to the country what they did to Kansas. What Kansas suffered under for years and what they had to, under emergency conditions, fix. So we can theoretically get in front of that in the U.S. We don't need to allow them to pass that tax plan and cut corporate taxes down to a third of what they are now. We don't need to decimate the federal Department of Education, Departments of Transportation, Health, and all of that. We don't need to go down that road. We can learn ahead of time from Kansas's example and make sure that it doesn't happen in the first place. This should be a learning experience, not just for Kansas, but for all of us. the
On Monday, the Trump administration presented its plan to roll back federal financial regulations that were implemented with the so-called Dodd-Frank Act of 2009. The plan intends to dramatically scale back the regulations that were passed shortly after the Great Financial Recession of 2007-2008 and complement similar rollback efforts in the House of Representatives. As a matter of fact, last week, the House also passed a repeal of the Dodd-Frank Act regulations. Uh, Here are two excerpts from that debate by House Majority Leader Paul Ryan and Democratic Congressman Keith Ellison. Small businesses are struggling. They have been unable to hire, invest, or get the loans that they need to get off the ground. Families looking to keep their money safe are hit with fees that they cannot afford. And why is this? Our community banks are in trouble. They're being crushed by the costly rules imposed on them by the Dodd-Frank Act. This law may have had good intentions, but its consequences have been dire for Main Street. Let me put it this way. It is more than a thousand pages long and has more rules and regulations than any other Obama-era law. You know, since Dodd-Frank's passage, the economy has created over 16 million jobs, over 85 months of consecutive job growth. Business lending, business lending has increased 75 percent, and banks, large and small, are posting all-time record profits. Community banks are outperforming larger banks. Credit unions are expanding their membership. And, oh, because of the work of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, 29 million people have seen $12 billion get back into their pocket and not into those of uh, improper and illegal practicing uh, financial services firms. Now the repeal goes to the Senate, where it faces a much tougher battle to pass. Joining us to analyze the financial regulation repeal uh, is Bill Black. Bill is Associate Professor of Economics and Law at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. He's author of The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. Thanks for being here again, Bill. Thank you. So as we saw in the clip, um, Dodd-Frank Act regulations are really complicated. Uh, They encompass over a thousand pages. So we're going to have to limit ourselves to a few key areas that it covers. Let's start with the Republicans' main claim, though. Uh, that the law and its regulations are too complicated and that this is strangling small businesses and small bank loans. And um, and uh, Representative uh, Keith Ellison challenges this claim by presenting numbers that would indicate that there's no relationship between the regulations uh, and uh, the state of small banking. What, what do you say to, to, to this debate? All right. So the first part of Ryan's critique is obviously correct. Uh, the regulations are uh, enormous and uh, ultra, ultra complicated, and uh, they are a field day for lawyers that have made big law firms very, very rich. Um, so what can we say in general about this? Uh, first thing is um, the Republicans are not uh, stupid in this regard. They understand the politics, which is claim that you're doing things for small banks, which are much more popular with people, and actually use this as your pretext to relieve the largest banks of um, any kind of regulations they don't really like. Uh, What I can tell you as a former financial regulator is it is always the case that when you see a rule that is exceptionally complicated, it is complicated in that manner because the industry wanted it that way. In particular, the biggest, in, in this context, banks, 
wanted it that way. And they like complex rules because, of course, it's much cheaper for them to hire a lawyer to do it once for the operations of a what are literally $2 trillion banks um, than for a small bank to be able to do that work. So it creates a competitive advantage for them if they make the rules very complicated. So that's the first reason. The second reason is Dodd-Frank was largely stupid uh, in the sense that there was no coherent understanding of what caused the financial crisis or past financial crises or future financial crises. So the individual ideas were not necessarily stupid. Here's a sort of good idea. Here's another sort of good idea. And then, you know, you have hundreds of legislators coming up with this stuff from thousands of lobbyists and they throw it all together and there's nothing coherent about it. And it doesn't deal with the underlying causes very well. So that was the second problem, major problem. A third major problem is Dodd-Frank simply wasn't bold. Um, and it was, again, stupidly not bold. It needed to be bold to deal with uh, the most significant problems, many of which were old problems that we had fixed in the past. So, for example, um, they refused to reinstate Glass-Steagall even though Glass-Steagall had worked brilliantly for over a half century, and even though ever since we started to gut Glass-Steagall, which we did by uh, regulatory interpretations long before it was effectively repealed uh, under President Clinton, it has produced one problem after another. So you could have saved literally, you know, literally, um, 70 pages of legislation and literally uh, it's it's actually not a thousand pages of regulations it's several thousand pages of regulation required you could have saved at least 200 pages of regulation if you had said instead the law repealing Glass-Steagall is repealed right <laughs> and Glass-Steagall is back uh, that would have taken about nine words uh, and you would have uh, had a dramatically more effective situation. Similarly, one of the true outrages is when uh, when Brooksley Bourne, then the chair of the Commodities Future Trading Commission, tried to protect us from financial derivatives. And a bipartisan coalition came together to produce one of the worst acts of legislation ever, Commodities Future Modernization Act, um, under Clinton again, uh, that uh, removed all ability to regulate financial derivatives. Well, instead of simply repealing that obscene act, they spent 70 pages doing something in between, and then they created half-assed sort of uh, kind of uh, approaches to this, which are nowhere near as effective. And because they're not clean exclusions, we try, because they try to carve out really complex situations, they go on for hundreds of pages and they're still going to be ineffective because they're easy to evade. But Representative Ellison is also correct that none of this has anything to do with the economy. The uh, economy is not being constrained by lack of lending. In fact, uh, the banks are sitting on tons of money that they could lend. It's being constrained by the fact that businesses don't see very productive investments that they're going to make. And you've seen all the reluctance even to simply 
hire people back full time and to bring people who uh, became so discouraged that they dropped out of the labor force back in. You've seen that wages uh, have stalled for all these years. These are the problems, not uh, anything to do uh, with uh, Dodd-Frank uh, as uh, slowing down the recovery. So it's a non sequitur, but it is true that the legislation is often poor. Now, at the right, treasury um, level, Let me just uh, interrupt you for a second. I just want to focus on one of the things that, uh, that uh, has gotten a lot of attention, which was the uh, Volcker rule, the so-called Volcker rule, which I guess is supposed to in some ways replace uh, the idea of the Glass-Steagall Act. Um, just can you describe what it's about and, uh, and uh, what uh, eliminating this so-called Volcker rule would do? Yeah, that's what the one I was talking about, where they refused to simply blink, bring back Glass-Steagall. Instead, they tried to do this ultra-complicated carve-out. Um, now, no criticism of Volcker. This is the best he could do. He, you know, they refused to bring back Glass-Steagall. So he said, well, you should prevent proprietary trading uh, by banks. Proprietary trading is when you trade um, these kind of investment banking. So this is where you are not making loans as a bank. You're taking an ownership position. You're buying stock or derivatives. And uh, say so you shouldn't allow that because that's much riskier and creates conflicts of interest. But then you have to distinguish proprietary trading for when they trade for their customers. And that gets into intent, which they can easily mask. So then there are hundreds of pages to try to prevent evasions. And then the big banks came back and said, but, but in this situation, that'd be unfair. So then they create hundreds of pages of exceptions to it. And the result is something that is exceptionally expensive. It's still easy to evade, won't achieve its purpose. And, you know, yes, I can understand why you would go after the Volcker rule, but what you should do is simply bring back Glass-Steagall. More broadly, they're creating something very dangerous. And this is particularly in the Treasury variant. So, as you said, there are two initiatives, one by the House, now in the Senate, to basically repeal everything. And then Treasury is saying, well, no, 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 just change some two really big things. The one really big thing is that they're going after the... Um, Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. And the reason they're doing this is it is by far the most effective, most important part of Dodd-Frank. And, of course, it was so effective because it was designed by um, now Senator Warren, then Professor Warren, Elizabeth Warren. And industry, the finance industry, hates them with a purple passion. So they're going to gut the CFPB. The second thing is going to be the get-out-of-jail-free card for the big banks from all effective regulation. It's an idea that sounds neat to a number of folks. It's, hey, why don't we distinguish between banks that have a very high capital levels and banks that don't have such a high capital level. If they've got a real high capital level, A, they got a protection against loss, and B, they should have the right incentives. They've got a lot of their own money at risk not to do wild and crazy things. So if they have high capital, 
why don't we just let them do pretty much whatever they want? Well, the problem is all the fraud schemes that actually have produced the huge losses and our recurrent financial crises, what do they do? They create huge reported capital that is fictional. In other words, in precisely the situations you most need effective regulation, they're about to get rid of effective regulation on the basis of supposed capital that will prove to be fictional capital uh, whenever there's actually a serious problem. So this is a disastrous idea uh, that's getting almost no attention uh, in the press, uh, the fact that uh, the implications are fraud. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, stop Republicans from deregulating Wall Street and defend the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Now, in case you missed it, on June 8th, the House of Representatives voted almost entirely along party lines to roll back most of the financial regulations put into place by the 2010 Dodd-Frank Act. In typical Republican dog-whistle code, they had the audacity to call the legislation the Financial Choice Act and make claims that it was, at heart, a jobs bill. And it makes you wonder sometimes how much of their own bullshit they really believe. Now, here's the damage report. The so-called Choice Act exempts some financial institutions from many of Dodd-Frank's restrictions that limit risk-taking, replaces Dodd-Frank's method of dealing with large and failing financial institutions with a new bankruptcy code provision, and weakens Elizabeth Warren's extremely effective Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, known as the CFPB, along with giving power to the president to fire the agency's director at will. And the cherry on top is the elimination of the Labor Department's fiduciary rule, which aims to protect people with investments from self-serving financial advisors. For more on that rule, I suggest checking out Best of the Left Edition 1079 from February 14th. Now, some say this bill, as is, will never get through the Senate, but others are concerned that parts of it may actually have more bipartisan support there. Americans for Financial Reform, a nonpartisan and nonprofit coalition of more than 200 civil rights, consumer, labor, business, investor, faith-based, and civic and community groups, wants to hold those who voted for the Choice Act accountable for their vote. Their campaign, which uses the hashtags DefendCFPB and hashtag WrongChoiceAct, includes a website linked in our show notes where you can see how your congressperson voted on the bill and write them a letter with your concerns. Get the latest from Americans for Financial Reform on Twitter by following them at RealBankReform, and check out their website at OurFinancialSecurity.org.
As always, you should call, call, call Congress and use all of the resistance tools available to make sure your voice is heard by your representatives and especially your senators who will be weighing in next on this. A quick reminder that our favorite way of calling Congress is through the Stance app, which you can find at takeastance.us. They don't just make it easy to call, but they make sure your message is delivered even when the lines are busy and the voicemails are full. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if protecting citizens and our economy from the greed of Wall Street is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about stopping Republicans from deregulating Wall Street and defending the CFPB via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted? a body in a crowd put your name on a petition with your signature so proud can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed weather beating on your brow demanding answers here and now because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change Talk about who James Buchanan is in this story. Yeah, I imagine most of your listeners will never have heard of uh, James McGill Buchanan. I hadn't when I started doing the research. And in fact, I wasn't looking for the Cokes or anything about this network. I was trying to understand why it was that some, uh, you know, self-proclaimed free market economists had gotten involved in the Southern schools fight in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education. And they were actually in, in race neutral terms advocating that some of the program of the most extreme segregationists. And that was Milton Friedman was the first person I was following, and then I got onto this James Buchanan. But when you had, you know, the most arch segregationist calling for shutting down public education uh, to prevent uh, uh, compliance with the Brown decision, and having tax dollars go to private schools, suddenly these these folks from the University of Chicago, you know, again Friedman and James Buchanan and his Friedman's first doctoral student, a guy named Warren Nutter, um, they picked up on that and started to push their own agenda using the, the storm over Brown um, as kind of wind in their sails for this agenda. And so that just got me really intrigued. And then I started following uh, Buchanan. And then I learned from a Latin Americanist that while many people have heard of the role that Milton Friedman played in advising the Pinochet junta in Chile in the 1970s on inflation, almost no one knew that Buchanan's team, the Virginia School of Political Economy, had also gone over to uh, to provide uh, advice and counsel to the dictatorship. So then I picked up that story and learned that Buchanan had helped them shape a constitution that effectively, as the book title says, put democracy in chains. Um, and then I moved to North Carolina in 2010, just as the Tea Party legislature was taking control. And at the time, I was reading Buchanan's ideas, and you know, his, he just has 20 volumes <laughs> of collected works. But you know, some of his work is very abstract. But suddenly, I saw what my legislature was doing, and I could see that this was Buchanan's thought in action. And then uh, he died in 2013, and I was able to get into his private papers at George Mason, and there the trail was just incontrovertible, um, that what I was thinking was happening was in fact happening, and, and the uh, correspondence 
and other materials there revealed it. And, you know, again, he was he was a very smart guy. He won the Nobel Prize in economic science in 1986. Uh, he developed a new school of uh, political economic thought called public choice economics, sometimes Virginia School of Economics. Uh, but he was really, you could say, in some ways, the mastermind be- behind these uh, attacks of the last few decades on Go, you know, on government in general and a government that answers to the people in particular. Um, and he provided very shrewd advice for how to undermine that, essentially to how to undermine the form of government that we've experienced over the 20th century, in which you have a more inclusive democracy and the system has to be more responsive to voters. And to do that, it creates programs to address popular needs and desires and taxes people. And they don't like the idea that very wealthy people are being taxed for things that they don't agree with. But with Buchanan, the idea was more than just about taxes. They were really some fundamental underpinnings. Talk a little bit about that, because I think we make the mistake sometimes of thinking about this only in terms of the taxation aspect. Yes, thank you very much for saying that because I I really react to that too when I see coverage by you know there's been great coverage by journalists I don't mean to um, seem critical of it but I think uh, there's there's too much emphasis on venality you know on the notion that these people are just doing it to line their own pockets or to escape regulation in fact this is a whole philosophical system and it has its own internal ethics uh, you know many of us won't agree with those ethics but they do have values. Um, and their chief value, they will say, is liberty. Um, when you actually pay closer attention, what they most mean by that is economic liberty, the freedom of property holders to do what they would like to do with their property and to not be subject by uh, to taxation for purposes that they don't agree with. But there is a very, very strong um, commitment that runs through it to this kind of libertarian vision of freedom as the foremost value. And, you know, you can see that um, uh, now at, at the forefront of almost all, you know, the big right wing think tanks, you know, from K to heritage, you know, there's a strong thread of it running through the Federalist Society. And so so you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a philosophical system here and a set of values that we need to understand um, in order to make sense of what's happening. And talk a little bit about those values, about the underpinnings of Buchanan's ideas. So he, he and the folks in the kind of networks that he was part of sometimes like to talk about themselves as classical liberals, you know, and they would draw a line back to Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill uh, and others from the late 18th and 19th century. Um, that turns out not to be, oh, and um, James Madison, of course, there's a lot of, of um, uh, mentions of, of James Madison by this group. But, you know, the truth is for historians um, and early American historians, if you had them on, could tell you this too. Too, that this, these folks have really departed in quite significant ways from those traditions. I mean, the classical liberals, uh, Adam Smith, for example, believed that a free market would benefit everyone, right? That in the long term, we'd all be better off. Whereas these guys are very clear in some of their writings that we're going to see starker inequality than we've ever seen before, and that the government is going to have to be very harsh in controlling uh, the inevitable response to that. So I don't think, so I think they have gone farther from that tradition than they believe. And also those classical liberals really supported public education. Uh, so, so there are many differences, but they would certainly, uh, certainly say that 
you know, that's that's what they're for. And their objection to what, um, you know, liberals and moderates and others want to do is they would say that it's coercive. You know, why, you know, what right do you have to tax me for a purpose that I don't support, um, you know, or to take my hard earned money and apply it to something else? So they they, they do have a very strong uh, uh tradition of resisting what they see as illegitimate authority. But it is interesting, I think, that they only see that little illegitimate authority coming from government. So they don't recognize power as operating in the market at all. So the fact that, say, you know, Charles Koch is, I think he has $46 billion worth of wealth at this point, you know, but that that is not seen as a form of power in their system of political economy. Um, so that leads to some real complications when you apply it to the real world. Ultimately, they believe totally in the market, that everything should be market-driven, it seems. Yes, and there, but there too you have an interesting, uh, interesting difference, and I don't want to take take you too far in the weeds on this. But there are many economists, and Milton Friedman was among them, that felt like the mar- that believed that the market was the most efficient way of allocating goods, and that that would lead to better uh, results for everyone. These folks uh, who come out much more from what's called the Austrian tradition of Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, and Buchanan was kind of a fellow traveler of that. These people think that the market is also the best social decision maker, you know, that we shouldn't be deciding things collectively by uh, democratic process and by majority rule, but instead the market where we each operate as individual, you know, isolated individuals um, and make consumer choices, that somehow that's a better way of running society. Um, and they call that coordination um, yeah, is the, you know, kind of the buzzword that they use. But that, that's a very that's a very different prospect. Talk a little bit about the ways in which these ideas have become so ingrained in the Republican Party. Yeah. Well, one of the things that was so interesting when I got into Buchanan's papers at George Mason was uh, finding out that for years, his centers, going all the way back to his first one in Virginia, had been doing what they called outreach to public policymakers and decision makers, as well as corporate leaders. So, you know, his team, the Virginia School of Political Economy, was developing these ideas and presenting them in academic circles as a kind of science um you know, that would help us understand politics in a new way. But at the very same time, and in quite different, you could say cruder terms, they were also doing this outreach to very powerful people in the private sector uh, and in government. And uh, and also much of that was partisan. In fact, the whole operation almost blew up at George Mason in 1997 because they were bringing in uh, top decision makers. They had uh, Antonin Scalia, for example, the sitting Supreme Court justice, uh, came in at one point Clarence Thomas, you know, many people from uh, congressional staffs were getting um, trained, you could say, in these ideas. And they had free lunches. You know, Milton Friedman said there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, they would have supply free lunches on Capitol Hill, uh, the Mercatus Center that's at George Mason, for once a week training of congressional staff. And of course, they work closely with all the major uh, think tanks on the right. Um, so, so this message has been getting out for a very long time. It's been disseminated, but this message comes in a kind of code that outsiders don't know. 
So that's essentially what I've tried to do in the book is decode things so that people will understand when they're hearing these words that the words don't mean what they what, you know, those who are outside this cause might think. And I I can give you a a classic one right now. Uh, Donald Trump often talked about draining the swamp. And when liberal, you know, and moderate voters heard that, they thought, well, he's going to end all that corporate lobbying, you know, in Washington and get money out of politics and, and, you know, make it so that, you know, we, we silence that noise and we can really hear from the citizenry. But actually, when Trump uses that language, he's using the language that comes from Buchanan uh, through these networks. And really what they're talking about by the swamp is the influence that organized groups of citizens have on government, you know, whether it's the labor unions of the AFL-CIO or the civil rights groups or the American Association for Retired People or the women's movement groups, all the citizens groups that make claims on government that require government to spend money either for a program or for some kind of, say, environmental protection, those are seen as the swamp by, uh, by these people on the right. Today, we heard clips starting with the broadcast going into some of the details of what the conservative wet dream of a tax policy has brought Kansas over the last several years. The other Washington spoke with near-billionaire Nick Hanauer about what the Trump budget looks like from his perspective. The Young Turks discussed the news that the Kansas legislator had passed new revenue-increasing legislation over the veto of their governor to grant the state some relief from the ravages of the governor's low-tax ideology. The Real News discussed Congress's current attempt to roll back financial regulations. Our activism for today is to fight back against that deregulation of Wall Street and to defend the CFPB. And finally, we just heard an interview with Nancy McLean, author of Democracy in Chains on Who, What, Why, discussing the intellectual underpinning of the modern Republican Party. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan, your member from Connecticut, calling in. I'm not even halfway through the Russian podcast that you recently put out. And I had a thought and a question. I grew up um, in the early 70s when, basically as a child, I was learning that Russia was our enemy. And, you know, we had air raid drills in school where you put your head underneath the desk and so forth. And I'm wondering... Younger people who grew up not with that experience, maybe not even understanding that at one time, you know, Russia was like a complete all-out enemy of the United States, if they have the same concerns politically that uh, I would looking at uh, Trump ties with Russia, you know, to me that that just goes against um, a guttural against uh, the United States thing. And I'm wondering if uh, younger people still feel that as well, or if if they maybe have a different opinion based upon their experience. Anyway, I'd love to hear. Thanks, and stay awesome. Hey, Jay. This is Amit calling from the Bronx, and I really appreciated your last show on Climate Solutions from a kind of market-based perspective. Um, I just thought it was very, very interesting how maybe um, some of the speakers in the show may not have felt disingenuous in uh, selling what was 
clearly a very regulated market-based uh, solution to conservatives. Um, and I was wondering how conservatives actually would perceive that uh, because it, again, as you mentioned, is a rebranding of a pretty uh, regulated market concept that has been proposed for quite some time. But it's a great show. So I was turned on by really both sides talking about it and particularly the enthusiasm around the possibility of uh, selling this to conservatives. But I was calling actually because I was prompted after this recent episode on the way forward for the Democratic Party. And um, it was just a little surprising. I was kind of waiting for a conversation around the draft Bernie, as well as uh, Justice Democrat um, endeavors. In particular, also recently, Elizabeth Warren interviewed with the Young Turks. And I think her interview for me and maybe many progressives really may have suggested how likely we would expect um, major change from the Democratic Party, perhaps, in particular in addressing the social change that we would need to meet scientifically sound climate change goals in a timely manner, um, or maybe better said in a less profoundly delayed manner. And um, so I haven't heard Jenk talk about um, draft Bernie in detail in terms of uh, talking about pros and cons, but I think a lot of people would support both endeavors. I'm more um, interested in the formation of the third party, but very supportive of uh, both myself. I'd love to hear what you think, and I'm really hoping there's a part two to this show. Maybe it's in the works, maybe not, but thanks so much for the show. It's been amazing, and keep up the good work. Oh, and I'd also like to put myself on the wall of shame. I'm not a member yet, and I've been issued, I guess I've issued myself my six-month warning, so thanks a lot. Hi, Jay. Uh, it's Jason, Olympia, Washington. I really enjoy Dan Carlin. I like his comment podcast. I like his history podcast. I think he's got a really unique perspective. And it creates a little dissonance anytime I find myself disagreeing with him. But the idea of, you know, that you have to let the hateful things be said, otherwise, you know, you're stooping to their level, right? And it's like, that sounds good all by itself, but in context, it doesn't make any sense. As a fan of analogies, you know, if you're being attacked, like literally on the street in a bar and somebody attacks you and is punching you, grabs sharp objects, you are going to fight back. There's no sense of the high-mindedness. Well, you should just, you know, be a pacifist. And because if you fight back, you're stooping to their level. It's like, well, yeah, I guess on an intellectual level, you are stooping to your level, to their to their level. But the alternative is, is not to have a rational discussion. The alternative is to possibly die, so you fight back. And I think that's a closer analogy to, you know, spreading the ideas of fascism than, you know, the, the analogy of 18th century, you know, parlor where gentlemen can discuss rational ideas together and we're all going to get together into this big uh, uh, intellectual group and discuss the pros and the cons and, you know, think about these things and come up with consensus as a nation about how to, how to deal with these things. Because... The other side of the conversation doesn't want to have a rational conversation. They want to exterminate the opposition. So, yeah, intellectually, and, and I think 
probably ethically and morally, you want to you want to stay on that higher plane. You want to say, you want to believe that you know rational people can work these things out in conversation. But in practice, that isn't how it works. You know, if you keep talking when you know the other fellow pulls out a weapon, you don't get to talk very much longer unless you react, you know, respond to that in some way. So I don't know. I don't know what to think of it. I'm still processing it, I guess. Anyhow, thanks a lot. We'll talk later. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First, a quick note on the draft Bernie movement. Uh, in response to that caller, I haven't really heard that much about it. I have heard of it. I've heard the idea that we should be supporting a movement and don't donating money in sort of a Kickstarter fashion to show a lot of support for a third party, and Bernie will see that and be so inspired by the outpouring of support that he will leave his current line of strategy and jump over and become the new de facto head of a brand new party, and then I don't know what. Uh, So if you know some more details on that movement and the answer to and now what? Uh, I would love to hear it. I, I don't see how the structure of our system allows a strategy like that to work in in this day and age. Uh, you know, third parties have come and sort of superseded old parties in the past, but not in 150 years or so. And we don't have a parliamentary system. So comparisons to like the Labour Party in the UK ring pretty hollow for me. So I just don't know, you know, notwithstanding, it doesn't appear that Bernie is interested in that movement, but even if he were, I don't, I just don't see where it goes. So I haven't talked about it and I haven't heard about it because I don't have anything to say about it. Uh, second topic is uh, free speech. Dave called in on, on free speech. And uh, for years now, I have thought that Dave from Olympia, Washington and Nathan from Vancouver, Washington should both take a road trip and meet somewhere halfway and hash out all of uh, life's problems. Uh, if you don't recall, Nathan from Vancouver called, I think I played him in just the previous episode. He is very much in the classic liberal uh, stance on free speech. Dave, who we heard from today, grew up in the same America Nathan did and, you know, had all of the same Cold War propaganda uh, piled on him and is now sort of wondering, huh, like, is the world a little bit more gray than I used to think it was? So Dave and Nathan are clearly, you know, on different uh, sides of this issue. Uh, You know, I played Nathan's message in the previous episode and I didn't respond to it. I do that sometimes thinking maybe someone else will call in and have some some thoughts in, in response to a voicemailer. But I do want to take just a couple of minutes and respond to some of, at least some of the highlights of Nathan's message. Now, I got to tell you, I always get excited when I hear the very beginning of of a message from Nathan from Vancouver, because I know I am about to be scolded in an exasperated tone. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington, and it's been a while. While I agreed a lot with Dan Carlin and and the 
the classical liberal, the, the Antifa was, he just sounded like a psychopath. So just in case you missed it, what he's referring to is a cl- couple clips from episode 1101, Free Speech in an Age of Fascists. I recommend you go back and listen to the whole episode, but there were two clips. Dan Carlin gave sort of the classic liberal free speech argument that all Americans are familiar with. And the other is an interview on On the Media talking with an author who gives basically the Antifa argument for why pure unfettered free speech is not good enough to fight back against fascists. So he's responding to the anti-fascist, anti-hate speech argument. And the reason I mentioned a moment ago that uh, both he and Dave were uh, subjected to the same American propaganda is because uh, right at this point, he just starts reading the script. Free speech is only free if you can say things that offend people. You don't need freedom of speech to say things everybody agrees with. Now, to be clear, just because he's reading the classic American script doesn't mean he's wrong. I agree with that statement. But he's conflating now hate speech and speech that incites violence against people and simple run-of-the-mill offensive speech. Not at all the same thing. How do you know what a Nazi or a fascist is and why it is wrong without being exposed to the content of those ideas? Now, this is an interesting one, and Nathan, frankly, disappoints me. He's usually more logical than this. He somehow equates hate speech and speech that advocates violence with discussion of ideologies. Like, in his world, Antifa would have, you know, book-burning parties and not allow anyone to ever speak about fascism, and therefore no one would ever even be able to know what their ideology is. And that seems absurd on its face. Uh, It's arguable that they took the wrong lesson from history and that history shows that the most dangerous movements are not always the ones with the worst ideas, but the ones that can end conversation and destroy the course correction it provides. Mao and Stalin killed far more people than Hitler, but mostly because dissent of any kind was as evil and stifled, not necessarily the rifles and the gulags. It's the suppression of the conversation to say, maybe instead of making steel in our backyards, we should be making food. Okay, here we go. He jumps in big time with the slippery slope argument. Again, in Nathan's world, if you begin to say that people shouldn't be allowed to advocate for the genocide of entire swaths of people, then the next thing you know, all sorts of restrictive laws are going to be in place that don't even allow people to advocate that they grow food instead of making machinery for the war effort. Now, the funny thing is, I know that Nathan thinks that the war on drugs is bullshit, but... He sounds right now like someone who says, if you smoke one joint, you'll end up a heroin addict and dead. Like, there is just no logical connection there. There are so many steps in between that to unironically make that argument is ridiculous. Naturally, during the interview, the Antifa advocate was asked, hey, how does restricting free speech make us any better than those people you say you're fighting against? And he points out quite rightly, well, plenty of countries have more restrictions on speech than America does. For instance, Germany has restrictions on promoting Nazism and restrictions on hate speech, those sorts of things. And it's not the only one. There are many. You know, Europe is where a lot of those countries are. But the point is clear. Just because someone advocates some restrictions on hate speech doesn't mean that they are leading their country inevitably to authoritarian communism where no 
dissent is allowed. You know, people stifling free speech like this, it's not the government. It's insane. It's like lynching. It's basically, it's the same as lynching. You're saying, I'm going to get rid of your right to speak and your right to hear because I have deemed that you are not worthy to make either of those decisions. Okay, and now at, at this point, I really just have to wonder what in the world he's thinking. Uh, it, it feels like talking to that conservative from about a month ago who thought that universal health care was akin to slavery. I was like, why should I have to explain that advocating for restrictions on hate speech is not the same as torturing and murdering someone and hanging their body in a tree as a warning to others? It's not even in the same realm of thought. Um, now, I, I've talked, I think, somewhat recently about the problems with ideologies. Following an ideology, I think, is just bound to get you into trouble at some point because you start making your arguments backward. Uh, you start with your conclusion as prescribed by your ideology, and then you construct your reasoning in reverse to suit it. And, and to me, Nathan sounds like he's got an ideology that he's working from, and that ideology tells him that unrestricted free speech is the best thing, and that that idea needs to be defended at all costs. And that's how you end up with someone who's pretty much a logical person making arguments that sound like that, which are completely nonsensical. Now, to be clear, none of that means he's actually wrong. It just means he did a terrible job of making his case. It doesn't mean that there isn't a case to be made. Now, as I think I've said before, rather than follow an ideology myself, I try to keep as my North Star the desire to reduce suffering and to support public policies that lead to that end. So I'm of the opinion that restricting someone's freedom to advocate for genocide doesn't cause them very much suffering in comparison with the suffering of those who may be the victims, either in like a one-off scenario or an actual systemic policy scenario of white supremacists who want them either dead or gone. So based on that, I'm open to the idea that restricting hate speech may lead to that outcome and reduce suffering in that way. But that proposition is far from proven. I don't know that that's the case, but I'm open to it. So today, I came across an article arguing that anti-hate speech laws help Nazis. And the author points out that the Weimar Republic that preceded the Nazi era had anti-hate speech laws, and they were used to prosecute some of those who became Nazis. But A, it clearly didn't stop them, and B, it actually gave the Nazis propaganda to say that they were being persecuted, which they used to rile up their angry base of supporters. To me, it sounds a lot like modern-day anti-political correctness arguments uh, being made. So the author said that those anti-hate speech laws are unnecessary restrictions on free speech, and they don't do what they strive to do, and they actually give the far right a foil to rise up against, and it actually strengthens them. Now, as someone who's focused on outcomes rather than ideological arguments, this is at least in the right realm of persuasion for me. The problem is, I mean, just the one that I see right off the bat, the problem is that we don't have those kinds of anti-hate speech laws that the author is referring to in the U.S., and that didn't stop Trump from using the social construct, not the law, but the social construct of political correctness in exactly the same way that he would have used any laws along those lines. So, 
Maybe, the counterpoint says, that those laws really aren't as counterproductive as that author claims because if those laws hadn't been there during the Weimar Republic, then I'm pretty sure that the Nazis would have come up with something else to rail against and rile up their angry base. I mean, how do you say political correctness in German? So the point is, I think it's an interesting gray area ripe for debate, and that sounds like what Dave from Olympia uh, is struggling with as well. The black and white arguments, like we heard from Nathan, wherein people get labeled as psychopathic lynch mobs, just doesn't bring the kind of nuance I usually like to hear in a discussion. As always, let us know what you think. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Make sure newbies know that there is a Best of the Left app that they can get. Couldn't be easier to start listening to the show that way. Also, please keep leaving us glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher, which helps other people find the show. And you can help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway at outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our sad stories And Stories and forget who it is before.